Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good afternoon. Stan Barkway here, uh, CEO of BMO Capital Markets. And I wanted to welcome you to a a thought-provoking client call where we're trying to bring new content uh, and perspectives to the marketplace. Throughout the pandemic, BMO has been bringing you the views of medical experts, industry experts, and our own experts to help provide context and deliver accurate, relevant, and actionable information. Today, in an effort to continue these critical conversations, I'm pleased to be joined by three esteemed panelists. Kevin McQueenan, Operating Partner, AE Industrial Partners, and former Acting Homeland Security Secretary and Commissioner of U.S. Custom Borders Protection. Sten Vermund, Dean Public Health, Professor of Pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, and Esther Krofa, Executive Director of Faster Cures, the Milken Institute Center for Accelerating Medical Solutions. They are here today to share their perspectives on how the government, public health, and private sector are taking a leadership role in responding to COVID-19. Each of them will discuss how these important facets have been coming together in this multi-fronted fight against COVID-19, giving us all reasons for optimism. Kevin, who has served as a career officer under President Trump, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama over a span of many years, and has now just become the operating partner of AE Industrial Partners, a private equity firm. He will discuss the vast power of the U.S. federal government's currently being deployed in this fight. Sten, an infectious disease epidemiologist, my apologies, and pediatrician, who is also the Anna M. R. Lauder Professor of Public Health and is Professor of Pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, is going to talk about a more uniformly robust public policy response that we're seeing throughout the world. And Esther, a respected leader in biomedical research, development, and public policy, and now at Faster Cures, the Milken Institute Center, devoted to accelerating access to life-saving medical treatments, will speak to the global progress on COVID-19 vaccine candidates and public-private partnerships. Kevin, Sten, and Esther, I'm glad to have you have joined us. Why don't we get started? Kevin, I'm going to start with you uh, as we go through this. Um, you've managed DHS through other more localized crisis events. What are the best-in-class federal and state protocols and responses and what's being levered in this case uh, and in this crisis? Thank you. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, so I'd like to just start looking at, at the big picture here and, and where we are in this crisis uh, and focus on those best practices that I think are starting to come into play and starting to build some momentum. Uh, back in late March, I identified really around March 22nd as, as the action point in this crisis. And, and for me, what that means uh, is the problem is clearly identified. The, the different forces that are going to mass uh, to address that problem are, are starting to pull together and, and work under a, a consistent approach uh, to addressing the crisis. Uh, and that was really the moment when uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, uh, was put in charge of, of rolling out the federal support uh, to the state and local governments in response to this crisis and really augmenting the health and human services and public health authorities' uh, initial efforts. Uh, and they faced two major challenges at, at the outset. One was a, a matter of scale, as you indicated, Dan. It, this isn't a, a hurricane that, that's affecting four states uh, or five states at a time. Even that is a massive preparation challenge and creates information flow uh, issues that can be really overwhelming. When you're looking, however, at 50 states, 180 countries plus around the world facing this crisis, uh, that information flow challenge uh, was absolutely immense at the outset of this crisis uh, for, for all authorities, but especially the federal authorities. The second major challenge they faced was really the, the federal system, which has uh, inherent strengths for disaster response because it's locally executed, state-managed, and federally supported. But at the outset of this crisis, when you're looking at uh, a disease pandemic that's coming from a foreign source in the United States, it really became uh, a challenge of organization uh, at the beginning. But I, I'm going to articulate why I think it's becoming a strength. Uh, so what, what about those best practices? Well, well, one, I think, has been some innovation on the supply chain. Uh, we've all heard and been very focused on key elements that are critical to our medical professionals fighting this disease. Uh, the personal protective equipment, the ventilators that are keeping people alive, and, and shortages in key areas around the country where we had hotspots, uh, notably and most uh, you know, tellingly in New York City. 
Um, one, uh, the team got together and innovated. This was FEMA professionals, DOD leaders, medical professionals, and, and private sector uh, companies w- with the insight about where to get this equipment uh, and how to deliver it more effectively. And you've seen a significant uptick in foreign sourced equipment delivered to the U.S. via AirBridge. You know, a 30-day cycle uh, on the water with sea containers coming from Southeast Asia was not going to meet the, the challenge. Uh, so they, they've organized 80 flights uh, of key equipment uh, to various hotspots around the country. Second, uh, applying dynamic supply management principles, uh, looking where we had ventilator capacity in the U.S., where we weren't having an outbreak, and being willing and able, and this, this means the state and locals and hospitals have to contribute, being willing and able to move those ventilators to, to hotspots. We saw that with the governor of Oregon offering 400 ventilators to New York uh, earlier this week, that dynamic Uh, supply management has come into play. And then third, really trying to fill gaps where necessary with the federal authority and federal funding, the Defense Production Act uh, in particular, uh, requiring uh, the building of ventilators at GM and and other uh, factories. So I I really think we're starting to see a turning point on supply chain issues with that team effort and with those best practices uh, in place. Uh, And and on that point, I think the federal system is actually going to start to become a strength for us uh, in uh, the next phase. Uh, We're we're looking for guidelines uh, from the White House Coronavirus Task Force as soon as today, Uh, you know, giving states the planning uh, protocols for this this restart process. Uh, It's a very unique situation, and every state is going to have their own uh, specific uh, outbreak uh, criteria, they're going to have their own specific responses. And I think that that locally executed state managed and federally supported model is actually going to be well suited uh, to this next phase of the crisis. How have you seen uh, the Defense Production Act being uh, being utilized? And do you see it having uh, more legs as we move through the crisis or is it really at its zenith today? So I, I think that depends on whether the, the ventilator supply is going to be adequate. You know, I think they've used it uh, to fill gaps uh, in smart ways. Uh, we never uh, kind of had a peak that washed over existing capacity uh, and this new dynamic management uh, with the state contributions and with the, the medical system contributions of where we can move equipment from areas that aren't as hard hit uh, to areas that, that are, are facing peaks uh, is going to help bridge that gap. So I, I don't think it's going to be used uh, more broadly. What, what I do think would be interesting is, is continued innovation in the application of FEMA authorities. Uh, and, and here we're looking at a new authority for state and local governments to step in uh, and start to purchase things like meals. Uh, you're looking at what the World Central Kitchen is doing, a nonprofit uh, with a program called Chefs for America, where they want to get kitchens activated, uh, use uh, things like you know, Uber Eats and Lyft to help deliver uh, those meals to people in need, people that are uh, over 65 and shouldn't be out at all, or, or people that just can't uh, feed themselves in this circumstance. A combination of that federal authority and funding uh, with, a, with a state and local executed program, I think, is going to be uh, the kind of innovation we need to continue to drive as, as this goes on uh, through through April and May. And we need to continue to innovate uh, to provide support to, to those in need. I think we'll reflect back and think that's going to be one of the hallmarks uh, that comes out of this crisis is this form of innovation and working together newly and in different ways uh, to solve this uh, this complex problem. Um, I wanted to reach out into your into your past background uh, and talk a little bit about uh, one of those interesting things. BMO is a is a North American bank. Uh, we cross over uh, in lots of ways the the Canada U.S. divide uh, with significant operations in both, and so obviously the border between the country uh, and borders globally is really fascinating to us. Um, what do you think are some of the unique challenges we're currently addressing at the border? You know, whether it's on immigration, food safety, importation of metal supplies. And, and how do you see that uh, as we move into this next phase about potentially uh, target opening? How, how does that adapt and innovate uh, in this crisis? Yeah, I think that's a really important question, uh, especially as we folks start to focus on a responsible uh, restart uh, to trade and, and travel. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I spent much of my career trying to make uh, that border uh, between the U.S. and Canada thinner uh, so that trade can move uh, more swiftly, uh, facilitate that, that vast volume of legitimate cargo, uh, and also on, on the travel side with preclearance uh, to, to make it almost a, a one domestic international air market uh, in terms of facilitating uh, travel between Canada and the U.S. 
that, that those are the kind of mechanisms we're going to have to think about using in, in new ways. Uh, obviously, if you have an outbreak in a Chinese city, it turns out to be a major city, but I would offer that, that most North Americans hadn't heard of, of Wuhan before uh, th- this outbreak uh, to become a pandemic really in, in a 10 to 12 week period. Uh, that, that shows how internationally connected we are and how fast travel moves. Uh, on, on the travel side, you know, for the U.S. in particular, uh, travel is, is the largest aspect of our export economy. Uh, it, travel exports, $250 billion a year. Uh, th- those are critical to, to restart in, in a responsible way. And you're, you're starting to see those conversations happen. Uh, really, what, what does an airport process look like after this? And it's got to be informed uh, by public health. You know, right now that's in fits and starts, just like we've seen most of the, the mechanisms in response to this crisis. Uh, we've got airports in continental Europe talking about temperature checks. We've got airports in the UK saying that wouldn't be a, a probative measure uh, based on the advice from their public health authorities. So how are we going to bridge that gap? Well, uh, I would offer we've got existing mechanisms, the International Civil Aviation Organization in, in Montreal, uh, where, where we've been able to talk about aviation security and border coordination in effective ways in the past, we need to apply those tools and that ability to, to create international standards uh, to, to really a, a public health situation in a new way. Uh, and programs like preclearance and others, I think, are going to be essential uh, to giving that confidence uh, that we can restart international travel that's going to be a critical component uh, of the global economic recovery. What do you think uh, are, are going to be some of the precursors to that? Uh, you know, we saw some at the time of SARS uh, where we had temperature checks at borders uh, and that uh, in the preclearance side, you could look at uh, ways that we developed some of the uh, contact tracing uh, and, you know, history recording uh, of whether or not you've been tested, whether you have the antibodies. You know, how, how do you see some of that innovation coming forward? Yeah, I think there's some, some key areas where we're, we're going to have to be very creative and, and start applying emerging technologies in new ways. Um, obviously, in an airport environment, uh, distancing is going to be much more important, and that's a very hard thing to do uh, when you're moving through a process that has show points, whether it's check-in, whether it's aviation security, or whether it's, it's boarding uh, the, the aircraft. So I, I think use of, of contact-less processes uh, ideally with biometrics, uh, enabling that identification confirmation so you're not handing over documents uh, to multiple players in the process. Uh, that will be a key measure uh, to, to help uh, limit the potential spread uh, of germs. Uh, and then ensuring that, that we can identify individuals that may have come in contact with someone who's ill. Uh, obviously, I'll, I'll turn it over to the public health professionals to talk about testing and, and what's going to be required on, on the contact tracing but as they move through an international travel process, uh, we can identify those individuals who've been on a flight with somebody who's in- infected, uh, but really taking that next step and looking for ways where people can opt in, uh, achieve some privacy protection, but still be quickly identified as having been in proximity uh, to someone who's later determined uh, to have been infected uh, is going to be critical uh, with the latency period of this disease, with the ability to spread it without symptoms. But we're, we're going to need those three elements, so biometrics and, and uh, you know, contactless processing, uh, spacing uh, in areas that have traditionally not had a lot of space, uh, and then a mechanism uh, that, that people feel comfortable with uh, that allows for, for comprehensive and pretty automated contact tracing. Those three things, I think, are going to be critical in the next phase. Kevin, those are excellent remarks and, uh, and probably a great way for me to use, uh, use this to transition uh, over to STEM talk about social distancing and the public health response. Stan is an epidemiologist and dean of the Yale School of Public Health, and you're very close uh, and understand the deep importance of uh, social distancing. We've all heard and read about the importance uh, of the apparent spread of the, of the COVID-19 virus, uh, and we're going through the social distancing and now lockdowns uh, around that. Um, as we think about Today and going forward, uh, we think about the curve flattening and the opportunity. Uh, I'd, I'd hope to get some thoughts from you uh, around uh, that social distancing, the effectiveness, uh, the go-forward comments. So I'll turn the mic over to you, and, and we'll start from there. Excellent. Uh, thank you. I think the uh, first thing I prefer to call it physical distancing because I think it's a better description of what we're actually trying to achieve. Uh, it's actually a risk that we socially distance if you catch the broader meaning of social because we don't want people feeling isolated 
depressed, discouraged, uh, out of touch. So I think when we uh, think about physical distancing, it's been handled quite differently in um, in South Korea and China than it has been in North America. Uh, we still have uh, trains uh, many times a day between New Haven and Boston and New York and Washington. We have not uh, uh, been quite as um, strict in lockdown as they have in Asia, and that probably reflects different sociocultural norms and different traditions. Um, but what we have been doing is uh, uh, having people in residence and homes um, trying to maintain that uh, six six foot distance when they go shopping. Uh, we've instituted mask use, travel restrictions, limiting group sizes, uh, and then more recently the testing and contact tracing. Um, the states of Washington and California were perhaps most aggressive and most successful having had the first exposure. Uh, and for, for a number of reasons, uh, New York, Louisiana, Michigan uh, had later responses and they've paid a terrible price as a consequence. I will say though that this recent 10 governor coordination effort on how to reopen business, education, travel, et cetera, is a hugely promising turn. And there's another six state governor's initiative in the Northeast anchored around the greater Philadelphia, New York City, Boston corridor to try to make sure that we coordinate these efforts and uh, and try to reopen society in ways that are strategic, much as Kevin alluded to. Um, I would say that the physical distancing and travel restrictions seem to have made the biggest impact. Some mathematical modelers are suggesting that we've um, reduced uh, the uh, pandemic by about 25% uh, from our travel restrictions, maybe 30% from our physical distancing. Uh, mask use, in theory, could reduce it another 10%. And uh, we were late to mask use, uh, unlike the, um, the Asian countries, which were very aggressive. By the way, there's a very strong mask use tradition in Asia due to air pollution in the big cities. So it was very easy to coax folks and in fact, a lot of people started using masks without being asked to. Um, contact tracing is limited. Um, our health departments are not well capacitated in the U.S. compared to our European counterparts. Uh, when one looks at what the Scandinavian countries have done, what uh, the national health system in, in the U.K., uh, what the Germans, uh, the Dutch, et cetera, have done, uh, it's far more aggressive. And we've We've not been generous with our state and local health departments. Uh, we used to have um, vigorous contact tracing environments 30 years ago when we were battling sexually transmitted infections and uh, tuberculosis uh, and uh, HIV with contact tracing, but uh, uh, government uh, cuts have uh, gutted most of these programs in most states. So we're rebuilding that uh, partly through volunteers and partly through new investments in the health department. Um, so I do think that uh, we can do much better going forward. We need to be more attentive to prevention rather than, than emergency response because we're going to save money and we're going to save lives if we're more attentive to prevention. Uh, we can do better on surge capacity for hospital beds, for, uh, for uh, ventilator, personal protective equipment, viral testing. And we can also do better with drugs and vaccines. For example, we started a vaccine for SARS and then uh, it didn't work out particularly well, and then we abandoned it because SARS went away. Uh, similarly, we started a vaccine for Ebola uh, back in the Congo epidemic 15 years ago, and then we sort of put it on a shelf for a decade until we had the Liberian outbreak in, in Sierra Leone and Guinea in 2014. We can be more aggressive and successful in uh, strategic uh, development of vaccines even though it doesn't look like the highest priority right this minute, but we can make intelligent guesses about the fact that coronaviruses uh, resulted in SARS, in MERS, sure enough now in COVID-19, that pandemic influenza has ravaged the planet in 1918, 1919, then again in 1957, then again in 1968, then again in 2009, uh, with severe uh, uh, mortality around the planet. So I do believe we can do much better going forward and learn from mistakes we've made today. Um, I wanted to go back on your uh, your comments here around uh, uh, contact tracing uh, and how important that is uh, as we think about moving forward and opening up the economy and how fast you could see that. 
uh, being adapted or adopted. Uh, I know there's some discussion about uh, Google and Apple collaborating around uh, cell phones. I've heard of some of the uh, the metrics that China is now using uh, through cell phones. Uh, do you see that as a as a hope of optimism uh, as coming, or is it really uh, quite a bit away uh, from what we will have for activation? I do think that the Google-Apple approach, uh, we're working with Harvard School of Public Health and the Broad Institute in Boston on a, on a new uh, self-monitoring uh, sort of uh, instrument. Um, that there are many innovations that can emerge from a crisis like this. Um, some of them can be monetized, other, others of them will have to be supported by government. And I feel like uh, we can really uh, take advantage of, of modern technology to do a much better job. Um, one can even, one can even uh, have uh, contact tracing being done by uh, robocalls if, 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 if people don't hang up too quickly. Uh, so I, I do think we can do much better. If we have the tools of um, widespread um, antibody testing and antigen testing, We'll do much better with contact tracing because it's more efficient to assess someone for a few days rather than pull them out of society for two weeks. And uh, since the incubation period is uh, up to about three days, uh, a week at the most, uh, before one gets ill, if one can actually test people who are in quarantine, one can release them from quarantine and get back to work much faster. Um, we can also be much more clever in deployment of our uh, academic and industrial and business environments. Where is the rule that we all have to work nine to five or eight to eight? Um, why not uh, use the uh, 24-hour or at least the 18-hour workday uh, to the max? And why not reduce the size of networks and, and worker cohorts? So that if you do have an emergence of a virus, you could, in fact, do contact tracing with a very defined and limited number of people and have a much better handle on that mini outbreak and control it much better because you didn't have it bleed into the other uh, uh, work schedule, uh, the people who work Monday, uh, Wednesday, uh, Friday, the people who work Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and they work at home on other days. and. There are many clever management strategies that we can use to reduce the size of networks that may be um, uh, the fuel for ongoing uh, infection. And I think when we start getting back to work, we're going to be exploiting some of these strategies. And we need to have those ready if the coronavirus is a resurgent problem, which it very well may be because it looks like it's maybe a little more infectious than influenza. As you all know, we have influenza every single year. So I do believe that uh, innovation in management strategies is going to be an important part. So the business community is going to have to get together with the public health community to work this out. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, if I just gave for people on the phone a little perspective on BMO, we're, you know, in the capital markets division, which I look after, uh, we've gone to effectively 100% work from home. Uh, from an environment where we would have had less than 5% uh, before the crisis. Uh, I think we're finding ourselves to be productive uh, and uh, working smartly uh, and uh, addressing client needs uh, as well as employee needs uh, around this. Uh, and I would say for myself, as amongst others, uh, it's been an eye-opener for us to think about the way we work in a different way. So uh, your comments, uh, Stan, I think are very much on point to uh, a new opportunity to rethink that uh, work cycle as well. Now, I'd also say with some humor, uh, it feels like I already work an 18-hour day. I don't know that I could actually work a few more hours. <laughs> no, that's true. Could could I end with uh, a few interesting oh, statistics? Oh, I'd um, love to. So the past, yeah, the past six years at NIAID, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, which is directed by Tony Fauci, uh, we spent uh, far less than $3 billion in the past three years on pandemic respiratory virus research. But in that same six-year period, we spent over $13 billion in biodefense research. So what is the logic of this? Well, back after 9-11, the next month, we had that anthrax scare uh, because of the uh, anthrax terrorists who mailed all of those envelopes, you all recall, to... Uh, Congress people and people in media and the like. 
Um, and that, that galvanized our country to say, well, we need to defend ourselves from rogue scientists coming out of Russia or Iran or North Korea or the U.S., and we've invested massively in biodefense research. But despite the clarion call of um, articulate scientists as to the risk of respiratory pandemic uh, 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 viral threats, we've substantially underinvested in that area. So I'm, I'm dramatizing this for you to show you how emotion plays such a role in things like congressional allocations and logic plays such a small role and I think it's time for the business community and the public health community to be much more in touch because can anyone think of a more devastating economic blow to the planet Earth other than what's going on right now? And we had this pegged. I, I did a, res I did a, 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 a research uh, effort on pandemic respiratory threats, and I found 300 review articles on this. Not, not original articles, there were tens of thousands. So the, the public health community knows that this has been lurking for a long time. And we've, we've failed, I would say, as a public health community to communicate effectively with our policymakers and politicians, with our business leaders, our academic leaders, because the commensurate investments have not been made. So it's time to uh, do better in the future. Well, and I think uh, one of the things that will come out as the hallmark is this will receive the attention. I think your example there around mobilizing resources uh, and applying them, uh, you know, the hallmark of uh, success in America, success in North America uh, is uh, our ability to mobilize resources and innovate. Uh, and I think we will look back uh, a few years from now and be uh, quite awestruck uh, in the amount of innovation we put around how we handled it. Uh, and then also, uh, what we put into prevention. So I think your uh, your call to that is is very timely. Um, it's probably also a great transition, and thank you for that, uh, to, to move over to, to Esther. Um, Esther, uh, as we talked earlier, uh, is uh, working and leading the Fast Cures uh, organization, whose mission is to understand how the industry and government are accelerating medical treatment. Um, Esther, welcome. And in response and part of the work to identify solutions, you're actively monitoring various therapies to combat COVID-19 their process. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're monitoring and, and uh, the, the tracking uh, that you're doing and, and what the priorities are? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan, um, for having me on today. And it was great to hear the earlier discussions. Um, and so as you mentioned, you know, Faster Cures, our mission is to accelerate the development of treatments uh, across a variety of different disease states. And so when we saw all that was happening around the world with the spread of this pandemic, we turned a lot of our attention and focus to what we can do in response uh, to this virus. Uh, we established four pillars where we are focused. Um, the one that you talked about is tracking. Um, it was really important early on for us to put our arms and legs around, well, what are all the different treatment and vaccine candidates that are being considered for attacking the coronavirus. And like many, watching various reports come out of news media or in publication and literature, it was quite challenging to understand the state of play with each of these different candidates that are being researched and are undergoing clinical trials. So we developed this tracking document um, that's available at our milkeninstitute.org website, where we're tracking right now 132 different compounds that are in research, either preclinical or clinical, uh, to tackle this virus, and, and then 86 vaccine candidates that are also being considered. And the idea is for us to better understand who is doing this research, um, where does it stand in clinical development, when do we expect uh, those clinical trials to proceed, and then, and also when are results anticipated to be published where there is significant public interest. Um, this tracker has been used by both national and international companies um, who are developing drugs as well as government agencies and the general public. Um, so we're very pleased that we were able to put that information out there, which we are updating on a daily basis. Our second focus, then, is how do we accelerate uh, the development of either these treatments or these vaccines, um, and there's a significant amount of effort underway across uh, government agencies, and we have held dozens of calls with NIH, NIAID, FDA, uh, BARDA, which is the Biomedical Advanced Research Development Authority, 
the VA, uh, CMS, um, and a number of other private um, efforts underway, like the Gates uh, Foundation and CEPI, which is a coalition that was developed to track and understand as well as develop vaccines for emerging infectious diseases. Um, throughout all of these conversations, what we have been doing is, in fact, making a lot of connections between principal investigators and those who are interested in using their platform technologies to address this virus with uh, appropriate counterparts who can help to really scale up these efforts either through platform studies or through their own uh, clinical trials that are underway. Um, we've also uh, been fortunate to convene our strong advisory group, which is comprised of three former FDA commissioners, um, including Peggy Hamburg, Scott Gottlieb, and Mark McClellan, a number of former pharmaceutical executives, um, you know, head of Google Health, David Feinberg, and others, who have really helped to inform our work and where um, there remains gaps and what the opportunities are, in particular uh, policy activities that are still needed in order to uh, mobilize and accelerate all of these wonderful efforts that are happening both in the public space as well as in the private sector space. Um, in addition, a lot of our, our network are CEOs of major disease foundations and, and wanted to just add that into the conversation because, as you can imagine, with those who are most at risk are those who have chronic underlying conditions, um, diabetes and otherwise, or are immune um, compromised. And so it's important for us to make sure that their needs are, are being clearly identified and that the resources that uh, these organizations need to manage their patient population are, are provided. Um, that third area then leads us into, you know, what's the, what sets of policy actions that we need in order to mobilize uh, a coordinated federal response, and, and we can talk about that in a bit. The final area that we felt was really critical is this uh, conversation around surveillance. Um, how can data and technology create an early warning system for future pandemics? Um, both future pandemics, but what do we need to put in place in order to emerge from this current pandemic? There's a lot that's underway, as we talked about with contact tracing and, and the importance of that. Um, what do we need to put in place in the short-term, medium-term, and long-term? What are the lessons learned, even from prior experiences with SARS and MERS and Ebola, of how to have an interconnected a network where we can activate responses rather quickly um, in place in the future and what do we need to ensure our resources need to be in order to have that process um, well developed. So these are the four areas where we have focused our attention and where we're collaborating with our network and many others who are, are working in this space to really mobilize a coordinated response. I wanted to spend a little bit of time on some of the, the pieces that you brought forward. Uh, I was particularly captured with this concept of how do we accelerate. Uh, and, you know, it came through in, uh, in Sten's comments as well. Uh, you're tracking, obviously, a very vast database, you know, 132 um, uh, various vaccines and uh, other trackers. Uh, and how do, you, how do you help accelerate? How do you help prioritize? How, how do you help float to the top uh, the ones that you'd like to see more attention spent on? Yes, well, the clinical development uh, process is well established, and one of the things that we need to make sure to do is knowing that we want a quick response. We do want to follow the right scientific process so that a treatment or vaccine that arises from all of these different studies are what is proven to be effective. Um, so there is a phased approach in conducting clinical studies um, one, one of the things that we have been doing, particularly in making these connections to the appropriate study arms and sponsors, is identifying compounds that have either completed a phase one or a phase two study where safety profile has been well-defined and understood, either from a previous study and or because that medicine has been FDA-approved for prior indication. Um, that's from our efforts, but of course, there are many other efforts underway that are looking across libraries. Um, I would point to the Gates Foundation Accelerator Program, which is focused on scanning libraries of compounds to identify what drugs can be repurposed, with the priority being on those that have already been FDA approved that can be quickly accelerated in their study for the coronavirus. 
Um, as we're tracking these potential treatments, they fall really under a few broad categories. Antibodies, that's where you've heard probably a lot of attention in the news media about the opportunity for therapies that can elicit an immune response, either plasma that's been recovered from uh, convalescent patients. Those are patients who've had the coronavirus and they, they've now healed or recovered um, and have developed antibodies that could be um, used for patients who, who need treatment um, or creating a synthetic version of that. Um, an example is the work that Regeneron is doing um, with creating synthetic antibodies in mice um, that can also be a good therapy, and there's some studies underway with other um, other compounds that are focused on the inflammatory response, which is really what's happening in the lungs, um, where you have your immune response that is um, overly aggressive in targeting the, the virus, and in, in essence, um, you know, what patients are suffering from is that um, overactive immune system, immune response, and so identifying therapies that can, that can target um, either ARDS, which is um, the acute respiratory distress syndrome, or a cytokine release syndrome. Those are other options like Actemra. Um, there are a number of antivirals that are being considered as well, like remdesivir that you probably heard a lot about in the news um, that's being um, studied by Gilead, which was a therapy that was considered for uh, Ebola and studied for MERS and SARS, did not go through FDA approval, but has um, a known um, safety profile, and that is being studied through clinical trial as well as used for compassionate use. So there are efforts underway. We are doing what we can to help make sure that those that are the most promising are, are rising to the top, um, but um, there's great efforts by um, either BARDA, uh, which is the biodefense um, agency that, that focuses a lot on, on therapeutic development, um, and uh, as well as uh, other parts of government like NIH that we've talked about a little bit earlier. That's all, uh, that's all very encouraging. Um, as we think about your third plank around the policy piece, um, and, and part of your work was to educate and inform uh, policymakers and businesses, uh, how, how are you helping uh, have the private sector and governments work together and collaborate and the things that we should all be listening to or even trying to help on? Yeah, I will say that um, there are, within each federal agency, as we've been in significant conversation with them, um, even take FDA as an example, uh, they, uh, almost on a daily basis, you see different uh, guidance documents that are coming out, um, whether on the diagnostic and testing side, um, evaluation of serology tests which are these tests that can measure antibodies potentially and help us know when we can um, get people back into, into the economy, into the workforce. Um, or when I think about NIH and all its various um, components, who from NCI to NIAID to even NCATS, they're all working aggressively. Um, what I observe is that there are a number of efforts underway within these federal agencies and all of their respective centers um, but there is a great need for overall coordination, right, so that we understand where the status of each of these efforts are within BARDA, within FDA, within NIH, um, that we have either task forces um, below the White House task force that are coordinating these efforts and can help us track where are we with all of these different component efforts that are underway. So it, it, can, it can be a little bit noisy. It's, an, it's very encouraging. We're heartened to see all of the different efforts, but it can be a bit noisy in terms of uh, deciphering where do we stand, who's working on what, and, and how do we uh, mobilize further activity and action. From the private sector perspective, likewise, we're seeing a lot of effort there as well. Um, there are some reports and, and, and other other tracks um, showing what these collaborations are with over 135 different private sector initiatives that range from challenges uh, to hackathons uh, to scientific collaborations that are underway. I think um, what we have been attempting to do is to make sure that each of these different kinds of initiatives, as they are springing up, are connected with each other. Um, I spend so much of my day and my team making sure that as we're getting phone calls in with another new initiative, we're connecting them back into 
where these other initiatives are and making sure that those connections are happening so individuals and organizations are not starting up something new. And so there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, which is fantastic. There's a tremendous amount of collaboration. Um, I do think that there is a need for overall coordination. We can play a very small role in that. I do think that there is a a place for um, larger sets of coordination across these sets of activities. Maybe lastly, just uh, on the the fourth plank around surveillance, uh, I found that to be interesting. uh, And we could have a a look back uh, over the most recent outbreak uh, and while I think we were aware, I think there's a lot of debate uh, going on today around that surveillance and, you know, what we can learn from it, uh, especially when we start to think forward. So how, how are you developing that thought process? And are there lessons learned already that you'd be thinking about go forward? Or is it really uh, uh, something to be worked through as we as you develop that fourth pillar? Yeah, I mean, our current thinking around that fourth pillar is that we need to start uh, to mobilize discussions of the sh- in the short term, how do we return um, back to work? And um, that includes really, I would say, three or four main components. The first is aggressive surveillance um, and, and contact tracing, which we have talked about, and particularly digital solutions toward contact tracing so that this can happen in real time paired with partnerships with local and state public health departments, as uh, Stan mentioned even earlier, um, that can really start to, to, to track down where these emerging hotspots can be. That also needs to be paired with robust uh, testing infrastructure. Um, so what we are uh, doing in the short term is beginning to convene groups to talk through what those needs are, and um, our, our first virtual uh, discussion will, will be in early May uh, to start to lay out what does that plan look like, what are these various types of technologies um, that can be utilized. Um, in the longer term, we want to bring together actually a, an international community to talk about those lessons learned now um, and what we're going through now and what we need to establish um, going forward in the future. I will say what's emerging is that ability to have an early warning system. So as we saw uh, the outbreaks happening in China, how did we begin to mobilize our public health infrastructure here in the U.S. even before cases began to emerge um, that were really prepared either on the testing front or plans were really well laid out to begin to help work with the local and state health departments to prepare for um, their own communities and, and how they can um, start to triage um, the different um, cases that came into place. So there's some learnings uh, there already, the use of technology with those who can really do rapid um, genetic sequencing. That was fantastic to see that very shortly after um, the, the virus itself was sequenced, we saw a great response from companies like Moderna working on, on a vaccine um, but how can that also be taken into the um, rapid development of testing um, that can be deployed very quickly? And what does that overall coordination need to look like between private labs and CDC's labs? So those are the kinds of issues that are emerging that we need to to work through. Um, that's here domestically, but what are the lessons learned um, from other countries, South Korea with what they had with their drive-through testing capacity, Germany, as they were really able to be out front quite rapidly in aggressive testing with their own population. There are lessons that are emerging. We're watching this rapidly, and our focus is going to be on convening those leading experts, agencies, and uh, organizations to start to lay out a go-forward plan for how do we comprehensively address this in the future. Those are, uh, those are excellent comments. Uh, and excellent thoughts. Um, I think we're going to transition the call now to a little bit of a roundtable uh, with all three of our speakers. Um, and what I'd like to open up maybe to start off with is uh, what are the conditions for us uh, to have a uh, more open or more relaxing uh, of the current restrictions we have? Uh, we've touched a little bit on it as we've gone through, but maybe Senna could get you to start. Sure. So uh, as I speak here on the 16th of uh, April, um, we're hitting a peak for our case numbers here in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, This uh, day would not be the day to send everybody back to work. So we do want to see a decline, a substantial decline in the uh, epidemic curve in a a given locality 
um, the the rule of thumb in Wuhan was two weeks without a case, and I think it was similar in um, in Korea. Now you see uh, Italy and Spain opening up as they see substantial declines uh, in particular regions. So I think geography plays a role. I think job job uh, duties and uh, descriptions play a role. Uh, if you're a truck driver. Uh, versus an orchestra um, uh, instrument player, uh, there are inherent uh, jobs which in which crowding is part and parcel of the job, and others in which uh, working alone is part and parcel. And there may be pivots that industrial uh, settings can do, and we mentioned that a bit earlier about innovation in uh, in uh, the workday and that sort of thing. So um, it will, I think, take a deep dive. Um, geography, geography and the, the exact uh, nature of the epidemic at the particular time that one is contemplating opening up, the types of um, the job descriptions that can go back to work more quickly, more slowly. Uh, for example, here in the university, we're looking at sending people who work in labs for research back much earlier than, say, uh, classrooms of 200 people. So one has to consider the context uh, quite differently depending upon what uh, people are doing for a living. I do think, too, the ability to stand up with testing and contact tracing will make a difference. And Esther's comments about uh, deploying drugs that uh, will be a, a comparatively light lift uh, because we already know safety profiles because of usage in other contexts, um, that uh, if we have therapy available, we are willing to take greater risk than if we don't have therapy available. So many items are going to play a role in the mix of decision-making, and we're sorting that uh, as we speak. And, Kevin, perhaps your thoughts, uh, you know, I think you mentioned yourself around some of the, the strengths uh, of the current FEMA response, you know, federal uh, or state-run and federally supported. Um, I'd appreciate those. You think about that again, you know, the conditions you see to open uh, this regionalism. And then if you could add a little bit on the international perspective, uh, I think that would be quite helpful. Sure. Yeah. And I don't want to echo too much uh, of what Ben and Esther pointed out just on the criticality of testing uh, both both types, uh, whether somebody's infected or, or whether they've developed antibodies uh, to, to allowing uh, the restart to happen. But that that point on the on the state managed and locally executed aspects of the response. I mean, the the, the situations are just so different. Uh, the density of New York City uh, versus you know the the spread uh, and and relative isolation and, and the Great Plains, uh, the population centers, and so forth. I do think we're going to need tailoring uh, that, that's based on on those localized conditions uh, and. That feedback loop. How, how does how does the the White House guidelines uh, that are coming out today, informed by uh, CDC and, and NIH and Dr. Fauci, how are they going to be impl- uh, applied by the states? And what does that feedback loop look like? Uh, you know, if you can kind of stay out of the fray of, of the cable news uh, nightly, kind of with, with governors raising concerns and and the White House uh, responding, uh, and really focus on, on the base guidelines and what, what's needed to implement them. I, I think if that dialogue can stay programmatic and operational, uh, we can really uh, see some, some positive developments in the next phase. And, and we've, we've, got to, we've got to hold our horses. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of impatience uh, to get back to some semblance of normal, uh, but I think the conversation here has really outlined that that normal might look different. And I think we've been learning different ways to work uh, in this process as well. Um, but I, I do think that that travel and that international side is going to be a, a very interesting set of developments. Uh, how do we do that responsibly uh, as it's so critical to the, to the global economy? Uh, how do we do it with new uh, technologies and new processes, but also do it very quickly uh, with standards uh, that are internationally recognized? Um, you know, that, that's going to be a stark challenge, but, but I think an achievable one if we leverage the existing mechanisms uh, in creative ways. Well, and I think, uh, I think, Kevin, I think about the trust issues that come with that uh, crossing borders uh, is going to be an interesting one. I like the idea you've talked about with standards, uh, but it will get back to the same conversation you've all recently emphasized, whether it's consistent testing, uh, known ability to trace, 
but the, the, the interconnectedness of the world is one of its great strengths. Uh, but around this has to be one of its biggest challenges uh, as we start to move forward uh, and make sure that we reintegrate and you know rehab things like global trade and global movement of people. Uh, you know, on the business we look after is, is critical to be able to operate on a global basis. And, you know, we're learning new ways to do it virtually uh, than we had before. Uh, but the physical movement of goods and services and people uh, is important to, to where we're going to develop. Um, as I think about... Uh, coming down to the to the end of the call uh why don't we go through uh, maybe a couple of comments from each of you on you know what was one of the biggest takeaways or learnings that you had and uh, one of the things that gave you uh, the most hope uh, as you look forward uh and maybe esther i'll start with you for that i will say one of um the biggest takeaways i've had as we've been very closely involved and in, in monitoring all the various efforts is one of the comments I made earlier, which is this tremendous amount of response from the public and private sector to address uh, this virus. I, I think about the biotech companies that are emerging to use their platforms rapidly, the large pharmaceutical companies that are really um, leveraging their expertise and, and their technologies to address this virus, and it's been done in, in rapid form for, from the perspective of what is best for public health and the greater good. Um, you don't see uh, the focus being on competition, but rather on collaboration. I mean, that's just fantastic to see, just as recently as two days ago, seeing the joint announcement between GSK and Sanofi to collaborate in the development of a vaccine. I mean, that's unprecedented to see two major competitors come together to using their resources uh, to mobilize toward a vaccine is, is quite incredible. So that gives me a, a lot of hope, um, and we see a tremendous amount of activity that's underway. Uh, given all of that, I do think that we will likely get to uh, treatment um, in the short term, uh, not the months-long um, effort it will take to develop a vaccine, which is essentially what we all need, but that we will likely see a treatment in the next four to six months that will give um, us as a society more confidence to be able to go back into the workforce knowing that if you're experiencing severe illness, there could be a treatment that will help mitigate the worst outcomes. Um, so that's fantastic uh, sets of efforts. And even on the vaccine development front, we're seeing uh, development in rapid form, um, you know, seeing that Moderna first to, to human um, um, trial in record time, uh, you know, over just six, under 60 days or so after they had sequenced um, the, the virus was incredible to see. So a lot, a lot underway, a lot um, of promise, I would say. So that's been my biggest takeaway is just the, a, a huge amount of activity underway to help us solve for this crisis. That's great. Stan. So let me highlight two things that maybe people don't think uh, as much about. First of all, Esther has been articulate on the public-private partnerships that are going to be needed here. It's not necessarily um, good business to invest in something that might happen. And one will not have uh, necessarily a market for a particular drug or a particular vaccine if something might happen. And I think the public sector can mitigate risk in uh, the private sector uh, and unleash innovation and creativity if uh, it has a broader view, uh, and you've highlighted, Esther, the, the uh, Gates Foundation investment in the platform to do rapid drug screening, there's an example of a quasi-public, quasi-private, whatever you term Gates, um, uh, helping uh, the broader industry. A second thing that maybe people don't think about is how global population pressures are going to create um, further challenges in uh, bringing humankind in touch with Mother Nature. Um, when I was born in the early 50s, uh, there were 2.4 billion people on planet Earth. Now there are 7.7 .7 billion, and we're on our way to about 9.7 billion in the next 20 years. And we are uh, chopping down rainforests and moving into areas where humans didn't used to live. We're eating foods that were not popular previously we are going to see more and more diseases jump from animal populations to human populations, just as we've seen in the last uh, several decades. And uh, even HIV was a, a zoonotic disease that came from vertebrate animals to man. So we're going to see this uh, more and more. 
And until we get a handle on our uh, climate uh, challenges, uh, our population challenges, our species diversity uh, challenges, I think we're going to see more and more of these diseases leap into humankind. Uh, that's a that's a, a cold dose for optimism, uh, but understood. And I think if I you know summarize some of what you heard on the call is uh, the amount of people getting around and putting this higher up the priority list, as you said, uh, I think is great. So Kevin, why don't you bring us home? What were your uh, your big observations, and uh, what gives you reason for hope? Yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'm going to echo Stan's first and, and just cite three real quick in terms of takeaways. Uh, you know, one. Uh, as, as someone who uh, joined government to respond to the 9-11 attacks and, you know, had been academically focused on that threat uh, since the mid-90s uh, in, the, in the rise of, of al-Qaeda and bin Laden's uh, threats and warnings, it, this, there's a lot of similarities uh, to uh, the fact that, that we knew that this was a, a threat. Uh, you know, personally participated in three or four major pandemic exercises during my federal career. Uh, we, we knew it would be challenging, uh, but but to Sten's point, there, there's thousands of scholarly articles that said this is coming, and, and yet we still weren't ready. There was a, that failure of imagination that we had on the terrorism front uh, in, in terms of the, the scale of the preparedness required. Uh, and I think that's a takeaway that, that we we need to, to really internalize uh, and, and respond to it as we look back at, at the origins of the crisis and the, and the mistakes and, and, and successes of the early response. Uh, but on the more optimistic front, uh, two things. Um, you know, one, I, I was worried about the capacity of, of a, a federalism system uh, to respond to this. Uh, you know, thinking about DOD level challenges, going, you know, go, going back to World War II, where you had 30,000 people uh, within months serving under Marshall, George, General George Marshall, and the Defense Production Board, the War Production Board. Uh, and how could we do that with dozens of people operating in a supply chain task force out of FEMA? Uh, or, or thinking about the information flow and, and knowing what, how many thousands of professionals with good uh, data support it requires to really understand that, that level of information flow and how quickly uh, the, the FEMA team, uh, with support from agencies across government, with private sector engagement, with the Department of Defense involvement, uh, were able to, to bend that curve, not just the, the curve we worry about on the public health side, but the, but the information and response curves uh, by by repurposing existing mechanisms in innovative ways, that that uh, I think is extraordinarily encouraging. Uh, and then lastly, uh, the the will of of people all over the world, uh, here in North America for sure, but but elsewhere, to listen and and do their part to prevent the spread of the disease. We see it working uh, in in all uh, areas of the world where uh, measures have put in place, not always or as early as they needed to. Uh, but the response uh, of individual citizens uh, to, to follow the rules, uh, to help each other, I think is, is really a, a huge positive uh, and, and something we can build on uh, in, in the restart as well. Those are great and, uh, and great uh, moments for uh, us to respond to as a society. And uh, as much as none of us wish we were here, uh, I, too, share uh, thoughts of optimism and hope that we will, uh, we will learn from this and we will come out stronger and better. Um, we're at time. Uh, let me first say uh, to Kevin, Esther, and Sen, thank you very much for your, uh, your insights uh, and your contribution to this dialogue. Uh, we very much appreciate uh, you helping us at BMO uh, bring forward thought leadership uh, on these topics uh, in this time. And uh, to all those that are listening, thank you. Be safe. Be healthy. Uh, and uh, we'll be in contact, I'm sure, soon. Thanks, everyone. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice 
or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.